This episode of the Political Worldview podcast is funded by the University of Birmingham's Alumni Impact Fund. For more information on this and other projects, please visit birmingham.ac.uk forward slash alumni. Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, July 11th, 2017, the Cyprus has no peace deal, Trump has no mates edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham here in England. I'm joined as usual, we've got the band back together, uh, the original and best team, joined as usual by Kristala Yakinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. How are you doing, Kristala? Uh, I am depressed, cold and highly caffeinated. How are you, Adam? <laughs> That's something an excellent triad of attributes. You're, you're looking uh, shawled. I am uh, over there. I'm shawled. We're in the haunted uh, uh, broadcast room. Wing. Uh, We're in the haunted yeah, wing. The haunted wing, which seems to be very, very cold mm-hmm. uh, relative to the entire rest of the building, which is probably good for uh, quality recording equipment, not so good uh, for My caffeinated yes. post-failed peace negotiation depressive Cypriots. True, exactly. But we'll get to that. Let's not steal, uh, steal the story's thunder. And also by Scott Lucas. Uh, a professor of international politics and editor of news and commentary site EA Worldview, who's waited very patiently through all that for me to say, how are you doing, Scott? I'm doing very well, Adam. It's so good to be back on our world tour as the band. And not those wannabes you two apparently were playing in London this weekend. Can we do a world tour, do you think? If 80,000 people would pay us like they paid those jumped up Irish fellas, yeah, I'd be glad to do that. Yeah, if, 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 someone, if someone was prepared to cut my, uh, if someone's prepared to cut my tax rate to the uh, to the actual rate paid by you two, then I would readily uh, make the travel to whatever destination they named. Our two topics today: first, high hopes are dashed as talks over a Cyprus peace and unification deal fail again at a late stage. Will the troubled island ever crack it? Second, Donald Trump comes to Hamburg for a G20 meeting. Awkwardness ensues. Is American global leadership in a death spiral? On July 7th, failure was declared by the United Nations after a week of top-level negotiation in Switzerland seeking a final peace and unification deal for Cyprus. Greek Cypriot President Nikos Anastasiades Good work. Uh, and Mustafa Akinch, leader of the breakaway Turkish Cypriot north of the island, had gone there with hope in the air that they might seal six months of prior negotiation with a final agreement. Cyprus, which has a population divided between those who identify as Greek and Turkish, has been divided since 1974 when a coup backed by Greece's then military government prompted an invasion by Turkey, followed by a de facto partition that continues to the present day. Since then, there have been a few attempts to negotiate reunification, the last being in 2004, just before Cyprus's accession to the EU, but they've all ended without result. Sticking points this time, according to reports, included how many Turkish troops could stick around in Cyprus and for how long, and compensation for those who lost property after fleeing south during the Turkish invasion. Cristalalala. Yes. Um, we sometimes call on you for your Australian credentials uh, on this show. Today, it is your Greek Cypriot ones that we need to press into service. Um, I gather from your social media output that you are not best pleased about this, uh, but displeasure is a many splendid thing, uh, and you can tell us a little bit about it. But um, let's start by putting this in some kind of context. 
I feel like um, as someone who doesn't pay a lot of attention to Cyprus... Which would disappoint so many Cypriots because I need you to know that Cyprus for Cypriots is the centre of the world between the earth and the sun. Just, just I'm putting it out there. Good, good, good to know. And Well, we're paying attention now, so let's see if we can make up for it. Um, the only two times that I seem to be able to recall you know, getting myself up to speed with Cyprus were when I edited student publications in Glasgow around the turn of the century and then again in London around 2004 and both times it was the the basic story was there was a lot of trailing and excitement and possibility there was going to be a peace deal and then suddenly late on there's either a vote or a change of heart or like something kills it. So this is a tough nut to crack. Yeah. Um, Discuss. Take us, take, take us into this from whatever angle you think appropriate. Like, what, what has just happened? Uh, where does this stand in the context of what has been happening for a long time? Um, so, Cyprus, Cyprus is a deceptive conflict. Maybe Cyprus is a representation of deceptive conflicts. Let's, let's start from there. Let's start from the intellectual rather than the uh, emotional. So I don't tell you that I spent a fair amount of that Friday bawling my eyes out about another face-fail peace process in Cyprus. When you go to Cyprus, things seem pretty good. It, uh, it expects 4 million tourists this year for a population of 1 million people. It's catching a lot of tourism from Middle East, North African tensions. Uh, it's very hot and sunny and warm and relaxed and people are pretty friendly. And then there is this kind of scar through the middle that's um, guarded by the UN and is one of the longest running um, UN peacekeeping missions since 64, actually. This is like a fence, partition, no man's land. It is type all divide. of them. It is um, in some places it's a, it's a barrier. In some places it's a series of checkpoints. In some places it's two guys kind of staring each other down over a matter of kind of meters with rifles. Um, and in some places, it's just vast tracts of land that no one really pays attention to. And this is like imp impermeable? It's like a closed uh, Yeah, I mean, yes and no. There are parts that are heavily policed. It goes from across the entire island from north to south. Um, uh, in some places it's heavily policed in some places there are there there are insufficient resources on kind of all ends mm -hmm. to police it so there's kind of one person stationed every however many whatever um, sometimes kilometers sometimes much less so it's porous um, there's an issue with um, um, illegal kind of migration crossing through the island as well because of that reason so it's, it's a complicated context and mostly because it doesn't feel particularly tense. You don't really see the division. And so the first question that I often get uh, when people come to Cyprus is, well, why bother, why bother unifying this island? Clearly no one wants it. It's been 50 years that, um, that there have been a series of failed peace processes and no one's killed each other since 96, 97. So... You know what's the point? Just just put up a wall properly, and um, go about your business. So, like, that would mean the international community recognizes Northern Cyprus as an independent entity, and everyone shakes hands in Cyprus and that's says, the, "Let's let's, let's uh, agree to disagree." And that's be on our the way. kind of conversation that kind of is thrown about. Um, 
And I think there's so there's an and the most important point here I think is that there's an inertia around around the conflict. Um and what that that hides is a real tension between the communities. So Greek Cypriots by and large live in the Republic of Cyprus, which is the recognized state in the south, the southern two thirds of the island, and Turkish Cypriots by and large live in the northern third of the island, which is, as Adam points out, the unrecognized Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. So, and there are other communities on the island, but the two communities have kind of dominated this this debate and this kind of nationalist rhetoric and ownership of the conflict. So we say that Cyprus is a conflict between Greek and Turkish Cypriots. Um, the two cultures or communities are divided um, and that no one seems to have sufficient impetus to solve the thing. Um at the same time, there are six militaries on the island, I think. Um, um, including the British one. Including right? the British. Yes, there are, there are British bases. Um, I seem to remember in the original British House of Cards TV dramatization. Which I have not seen. Francis Urquhart had spent time stationed in Cyprus during his national service, where he illegally murdered someone. But that's by the by. <laughs> that, was, uh, that, that was my introduction to the fact that... Um, that Britain had this like military presence in Cyprus that ran past the Second World War and, and you know effectively continues in a, in a sort of vestigial sense. Yeah, and is used um, is used quite practically today as well in terms of the the wars in Syria um, as a refueling station and and for other purposes as well. So. Uh, the British bases are important to the British um, and it's a very sore spot for Greek Cypriots because it's a legacy of colonialisation. Um, so uh, so where am I going with this? Where I'm going with this is that everything looks all right except under the surface there's a whole bunch of tension and mistrust and inability to see a future without this conflict that lives in very real ways um, in the cultures in the country. So it's heavily militarised, um, very nationalistic, far right-wing fascist groups on both sides. So there's all of this stuff kind of underneath the surface that is simmering. And I think this mistrust and simmering kind of fear of the other uh who each community doesn't know because we haven't lived together since the realistically since the mid-1950s and the 60s when separation started happening all of this has bred opportunistic the classic case of opportunistic politicians who are invested more or less in keeping things as they are. So the the, the turning point um, in 2015 was the election, as we talked about previously on this podcast, of a pro-peace Turkish Cypriot leader, Mustafa Kinjir, um, who came to power on the premise that he would fix this, solve the issue. And he's historically very left-wing, very pro-solution, um, and has done a lot of good work in Cyprus. On the Greek Cypriot side, the president of the country, Nikos Anastasiadis, uh, had um, 
had taken a big risk in 2004 to support the 2004 ANAN plan, that, that peace plan that got voted down by Greek Cypriots. So he had a reputation for being supportive of peace as well. Mm. And we do have, as you point out, this legacy of kind of series of failed efforts to, to get to the end of this thing. But there was a hope in 2015 that Akinji and Anastasiades together might be able to really sort out the sticking points. And so it all kind of collapsed uh, last week in Switzerland again um, over the issue of the eventual withdrawal of, of Turkish troops and the Treaty of Guarantee. So Cyprus is a, leg is a leftover of, of a previous kind of Cold War age. And there are three countries that guarantee the security of Cyprus formally, Britain, Greece and Turkey. Um, and um, Britain and Greece have a certain number of troops on... on um, Britain, Greece and Turkey have troops on the island, but the sticking point is Turkish troops on the island, um, uh, which number kind of... People say 40,000 troops on the... on Turkish that's, troops that's on the island. Yeah. Uh, and this is, as you can imagine, something that uh, upset, upsets and frightens Greek Cypriots, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea that Turkey is a formal guarantor of uh, the Republic of Cyprus um, is something that upsets Greek Cypriots. On the other side, the idea that um, Turkey might not be around to protect Turkish Cypriots mm -hmm. is something that frightens Turkish Cypriots, many Turkish Cypriots, not all. So the thing that collapsed the peace talks was this issue of how many people would, or how many troops would stay, would they all go, um, could Cyprus govern itself in a formal sense and would we remove the Treaty of Guarantee? Um, and they couldn't agree and everything got very uh, um, sour very quickly, kind of in the early hours of the morning. Um, and then Guterres came out, you know, and said... That's the UN Secretary-General. Right, right, and said, we're done, um, and I wish Greek and Turkish Cypriots the best. So... It's not you, it's me. Yeah, um, no, it's not me, it's you, definitely. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it was the end of cut two years of efforts, and I think they got... Uh, there are various reports about how close they got to agreeing on a resolution of this conflict but at the end of the day they went home from the leaders went home from switzerland with more or less nothing so um regular podcast listeners uh when they hear the word turkey mm -hmm. uh, their ears will prick up because they will they will have fond memories of our long discussions of um friend of the podcast recep tayyip erdogan the uh incipient uh, demagogic authoritarian uh, ruler for life of Turkey um, to what extent does the fact that A. Turkey is headed in that direction and B. Northern Cyprus is you know a sort of wholly owned military property uh, of the Turkish mainland government play into any of this is that a consideration? Cyprus. Presumably the North Cyprus people can't do just whatever they like here. They like, they have to clear things with uh, uh, Ankara. Turkey, um, Turkey funds North Cyprus. It pays for its day-to-day -day survival because North Cyprus is under embargo internationally. 
uh, because it's a state that is unrecognised, right? So Turkey has a lot of de facto control uh, and over both financially and over day-to-day decision-making, and it is something that um, frustrates Turkish Cypriots. There is no doubt about that. There is a general long-standing suspicion that Greek Cypriots have of anything to do with Turkey. Um, they'll never hold their, the Turks will never uh, keep to their word, the Turks want all of Cyprus, the Turks are barbarians, it goes like this mm-hmm. um, among Greek Cypriots. And they were invaded by Turkey, so, you know, there's a, there's a wound there. The ironic thing, I think, about Turkey's attitude to Cyprus recently is that despite all of the uh, authoritarianism um, and mass human rights violations, I think it, is, it has wanted to solve the Cyprus conflict because it has much bigger, much, much bigger problems. Um, mm. And so I think Turkey was, was, was pretty willing to get rid of this. Uh, so it wasn't blocking, I think. And this yeah, is kind of... I was say, like, one intuition I had when I heard that the issue was how many Turkish troops get to stay was yeah. that maybe the Turkish government yeah. kind of wants a whole bunch of troops there and uh, going down to like 500 or 1,000 or something, there's some strategic reason why that would be bad for them. Actually, it's the, it's the reverse, I think. It's that the Turkish um, army needs its troops elsewhere. Um, and so um, was quite willing to reduce significantly those troop numbers so for purely strategic reasons. Mm. Um, so that's interesting then. So like the, the Greeks and the Greek Cypriots want them out. The Turkish government's happy to take them out, but it, it's so just how this sort of bond s- of loyalty. Well, I, I guess the Turkish... Cypriots must just be super keen to have those troops. Wait, they, I think if there's... even the Turks would prefer not to be doing this, but Look, feel obliged. The, Turkey. The sticking point was that Turkey wanted a certain number of troops. Um, the the agreement was nine hundred and fifty and six hundred and fifty Greek and Turkish troops on the island back in nineteen sixty, right? And they wanted to stay to that number uh, with a possible review in a certain number of years. And Greek Cypriot. The Greek Cypriot president said, listen, guys, I'm conceding on the tech, like rotating presidency and giving certain powers to Turkish Cypriots in the new state. I need um, full withdrawal of Turkish troops. And for whatever reasons, and some of them are Turkish Cypriot fear of um, Greek Cypriot intimidation or um, violence from the past happening again, that was that didn't happen in mm. in the talks. So that was the th- the idea of all Turkish troops leaving is what derailed the talks in the end. But I think what's important to pull out of what happened last week is the question of, so if the country is not violent um, and if things seem pretty stable and if there are two leaders who have been more or less willing to negotiate this to the to the bloody end what happened, right? And I think it's a reflection of leaders in in Cyprus as a reflection of a broader kind of condition that they're symptoms of an illness, if we're going to play doctors for a second. And the illness is mistrust. Doctors of international relations, Absolutely, am I right? Absolutely, as if we actually were. <laughs>
Um, Is there a poorly judged foreign policy going on somewhere <laughs> around here? I'm a doctor in the house. I, I was making serious points here. Please. Illness, back to illness. Um, br- Cypriot leadership is is symptomatic of a broader illness, which is mistrust between groups of people that don't like, trust each other, and that are afraid of each other, right, and of what living together might look like and of what sharing power on both sides might look mm. like. Turkish Cypriots, those state is unrecognised, more or less get to govern themselves. Greek Cypriots, the state is recognised, they've lost land, this is how they perceive it, um, and it's and it's a fact, but they also don't have to share power with Turkish Cypriots. So where is the momentum for change? Where is that shared vision of the future? And I think something happens in very long-standing conflicts where you no longer are able to in, to imagine what a different future looks like. Um, and that, for me, is the problem of the Cyprus conflict. There and is fewer a, and fewer people remember, presumably, anything li- other than this. Yeah, living together, but also people don't remember living together, but it's not an issue of living together. It's what do you want your future to look like as a country? What do you want for your children? What do you want for your economy? What do you want for your society? What do you want for the, the attention and the energy of, of this country? And... I, I think there's a complete inability to imagine what a country without this the, the markers of this conflict could look like. And the markers are real. Like, you know, education is highly nationalistic and there's compulsory military service on both sides. But for the Greek Cypriots, it's just under two years for all men before university. So it takes a massive chunk out of people's lives, military spending, defence spending, the rhetoric, the anger, the division, the the conflict facilitates a lot of trafficking, um, the, the bunches of Russian money that go, that gets poured into the country, the, all of the sicknesses of conflict and post-conflict contexts inhibits an ability to imagine something better, right? And so we continue to breed politicians that um, are part of this inability to imagine something different. And that, for me, is the problem. So, yeah, Akinju and Anastasiades did a great job over the last two years, maybe getting very close, but they will never be able to transcend the conflict in the because because they look at it in a very kind of pigeonholed way. Hmm. And presumably the United Nations is going to be pretty wary of picking this up again if they've been down the garden path twice with negotiations that seemed like they were about to produce like ceremonies and handshakes and um, legacies and and they've not done that. Cyprus is Um, known as the um, graveyard of diplomats. and so that's my second point. I think um, nothing stays still. No, no f- failed peace processes don't mean an end to the way that life is lived. And the UN um, has threatened for some time to remove its peacekeeping forces. And she, I mean, I mean, purely from a logistical and financial perspective, how long can you keep your troops in a place where they they call themselves beachkeepers rather than peacekeepers, <laughs> right? Um, and if those troops are removed, what 
does that mean? And is the UN, the UN has been accused of holding the hands of both sides and keeping the conflict, the status quo as it is. So yeah, things will change. Um, and I think that the UN will slowly say, guys, sort it out yourselves. But I don't know if that's going to shift the dynamics of the conflict enough to, to have people think about a more positive peace. It's time for Number of the Week, where we take a numeral, link it to a new story, and jibber-jabber accordingly. Scott, what do you got for us this week? Well... You're pitching a new item to us this I'm week. You want, launch, you want to I'm, usurp I'm and replace Number of the Week. I'm launching a coup of Number of the Week. Well, be going. careful Turkish troops don't come to, uh, to yeah. respond to this. Yeah, let's forget peacekeeping discussions here. I'm going to you know, impose skeptical thought of the week upon Number of the Week. Um, I'll give you the sop of saying the number of the week is, is one, but that this new feature, which is just to pour scorn and skepticism on a news item that you never want to see again, has to do with one outsized ego inside the White House, a Mr. Steve Bannon, nominally the chief strategist, and one Nigel Farage, suck up to the Trump administration and uh, former leader of the UK Independence Party, and one portrait of said Mr. Bannon given to him by Mr. Farage, except it's not a portrait of Steve Bannon as Steve Bannon. It is a portrait of Steve Bannon as Napoleon. Oh, my. Is there somewhere I can vomit? I think I need to vomit. Uh, it, it, which, which, which of Napoleon's iterations? Is it like the, the big, crazy imperial one with all the gold, or is it like the military leader on horseback? It is the military leader not in horseback, but in his study in the Tuileries, to forgive my French pronunciation. I like that you looked at me like like I would well, have the answer to that question. Because you're one of the world, right? <laughs> yeah. you're, you're from the continent. <laughs> yes, right. you should, you should, you I'm should not know looking at, not looking at Adam to help with the pronunciation <laughs> over there, right? So anyway, so, it, it oh, is Napoleon fame. in full military dress, standing, presiding over various maps and items, because he, of course, is not just the ruler of France. He is the ruler of, Steve Bannon analogy, the world. <laughs> now, one could possibly as a skeptical thought of the week, pursue the skepticism to say that Napoleon, although he uh, took control of the French system and tore down the revolutionary system for it, was not exactly known for a democratic approach to affairs and could be quite authoritarian. One could, a la Steve Bannon, talk about the fact that to compensate for his relatively short stature, he was reputed to have a very outsized ego uh, therefore, covering inferiority with superiority. But one, of course, could take the analogy further, Mr. Steve Bannon, by saying that this ended with Napoleon being defeated by a multilateral force in the spirit of cooperation <laughs> against wannabe dictatorship and banishing said Napoleon Always to, optimistic. to an island where he... Oh, well, he escapes the first island, but then dies on the second one. Yeah, they put him on one further away. Exactly. Uh, the second time around. Key, so, key variable there. Perhaps a skeptic would say to Mr. Bannon, this is really the analogy that you should keep in mind. But no doubt for the moment, Mr. Bannon and Mr. Farage are thinking other happy thoughts about this portrait tribute to the power inside the White House. Well, we've had uh, we've had lots of Watergate analogies of late. This may be the first Waterloo uh, <laughs> one that I've heard, but perhaps <laughs> in the episode. Segway ever, someone. As, as we continue. <laughs> yes. Cristala. Yes. What have you got? Uh, my number is nine. Um, 
which is taken from an article that um, Adam devastatingly shared on his social social media. I share uh, a lot of things. Yes, you do. This one was called The Uninhabitable Earth, and it took me from the specific depression to the general depression uh, in nine parts, because that is how many parts this article has, um, just outlining... This is David Wallace-Wells in the New York... It right. is in the New York magazine. Um, this It was this week, right? No, I think it's the New Yorker, isn't it? As opposed to the New York magazine... Or is it New York Magazine? I stand. Maybe you're, no, no, it's New York Magazine. No, you're quite right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Every now and then I, I get, get one right. I confuse myself periodically. Moving on in my claim to victory that it was, that it was New York Magazine. Um, comprehensive depression about uh, how quickly we are going towards the end of the world with some optimism that there are some smart people working on possibility radical possibilities for um saving our asses collectively but what i found interesting was not i mean to i think everyone should read this article it kind of starts with this doomsday apocalyptic thing and then goes through to even more apocalypse in very specific ways um but I think for me, it was it was one of the first articles that I read that really comprehensively kind of pulls together in lay terms, science, politics, um, climate, um, and the way that we see each the way that each of these aspects kind of work together to screw us in in, in without any kind of shadow of doubt. Um, By screw us, you mean render us extinct. Absolutely. that They are the words that, that I'm looking for. Um, so anyway, read the article, uh, The Uninhabitable Earth, David Wallace Wells in the New York magazine, and join me in general depression and hope that maybe we could collectively do something better with the world. Well, uh from people uh, screwing people on a, uh, or things screwing people on a galactic uh, 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 and world people historical scale. People screwing people. To a, yeah, well, that, that sounds more fun, potentially. <laughs> uh, to a smaller scale instance of the same thing. My number is seven, which according to 538, as of this morning, is the number of Republican senators uh, whose votes are looking increasingly unlikely to go for the reform of the American healthcare system that has been pushed by Republican leaders in Congress uh, and also, uh, although he doesn't seem to understand its contents terribly well, uh, by, by President Trump. Um, for those who haven't been following the American healthcare debate, uh, President Obama, early in his term, introduced a radical reform of the American healthcare system, the main purpose of which was to expand the amount of coverage and the ability of people uh, whose employers did not provide uh, schemes to get insured in some way for routine healthcare. The Republican Party in opposition at the time campaigned uh, with vigorous, some would say hysterical uh, opposition to this for the best part of six years and racked up great electoral victories um, in the process of doing so. However, 
having won the presidency and majorities in both houses of Congress, they now face the dilemma that they campaigned against it largely on the grounds that it didn't cover people well enough and it cost them too much money when they were covered to get medical treatment. However, as you might suspect, being uh, small government conservatives, their proposed alternatives actually involve covering people less well and charging them more money. Um, so they're in a bit of a bind, uh, <laughs> those, those who uh, are being asked to vote on this new replacement healthcare system between the things that they many, many, many times told their voters were wrong with the existing healthcare and that they would fix about it and what they actually have all along uh, intended to do. Um, surprising numbers of them seem perfectly happy to vote through this new thing anyway <laughs> just, uh, and just see what happens. However, a few of these senators, uh, well, actually, there's a kind of weird coalition. Some of them are just worried about taking away health care from their constituents because that would be electorally bad. Uh, others of them are so conservative that their view is this new replacement plan doesn't roll things back far enough, such as Senator Rand Paul in Kentucky, whose constituents would suffer horribly. So in a weird sort of way, he may get out of voting for this thing that would hurt his constituents by saying it doesn't go far enough and then it just doesn't happen. So he gets to both pose as extreme and also not face electoral Armageddon. Anyway, the, um, uh, the short version is that unless something changes soon, it looks like the uh, effort to repeal and replace Obamacare with a uh, Republican-only state-shrinking alternative is really on the rocks. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader for the Republicans, has said that if that happens, he might have to, shock horror, begin to talk with Democrats about the possibility of a bipartisan vote to try and fix some of the problems with the existing system rather than repeal it. I know that sounds like a... a, a um, wild and radical way for a democratic and elected representative system to work, but it's the kind of threat uh, that the Republican leadership believes might just mobilize its members to vote through this uh, evil, and bipart uh, evil and wholly partisan uh, reform that is currently before them. Uh, be in suspense or breathe a sigh of relief, depending on how uh, ahead of yourself you want to get. Last week, the G20, the group of the world's 19 largest economies plus the EU, is that right? I've been like, uh, even despite my expertise, I've been like fishing around to work out exactly what the correct descriptor is for the G20, because not the world's 20th richest countries, and it's not actually 20 countries at all, because one of them's the EU. But anyway, they have economies, they're big, uh, they have self-appointed. Huge, they're as, huge. Uh, yeah, as, as a kind of like meaningful collective unit of some kind. Anyway, they all gathered in Hamburg to discuss matters of the day uh, last week. There were numerous subplots, uh, not least Brexit hanging in the background, and the debut of France's new centrist matinee idol president Emmanuel Macron, uh, who managed to upset the choreography of the group photo and say some weird and offensive things about Africa's civilizational foundations. But you can rest assured that when Donald Trump is involved, no one else will be the center of attention for long. Uh, the world watched in some suspense as the famously anti-diplomatic, detail-averse and attention-short president took his place for a rapid-fire series of talks about the world's major issues. The policy highlight uh, was the United States being left on the sidelines as its intention to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement was acknowledged, while others agreed to press on. Uh, that chimes nicely with your apocalyptic number of the week, uh, Cristala. 
Um, meanwhile, on those sidelines, Trump had his first in-person meeting, he says, uh, with Vladimir Putin of Russia, at which they apparently agreed that everything is fine, just fine. Uh, and he also issued some meaningless and uninformed assurances about a swift new UK trade deal of the sort for which Theresa May and the British media seem to have limitless appetite. Um, the protocol highlight was when Trump's daughter Ivanka, an unpaid White House aide who she says likes to stay out of politics, uh, sat in for the president with the other heads of government during a discussion on Africa, perhaps a sign of how much they prioritize uh, that particular part of the world. Maybe it's an emerging fashion market for her. <laughs> All too plausibly. Um, oh, and before the conference began, uh, Trump took time to stop in in Warsaw to deliver a creepy speech uh, with fascist undertones about how our civilization will triumph while crowds bu bust in by Poland's creepy government with fascist undertones uh, <laughs> cheered enthusiastically. Um, so, Scott, I think that just about covers it. You've been... Uh, you've been doing the round robin on the media, something fierce, uh, talking about all of this as it, as it unfolded. Uh, how how did it go? On a scale on a scale of uh, one to ten, where one is tying your own shoelaces together and face planting, and ten is resolving all outstanding policy dilemmas to universal uh, acclaim. Uh, what, uh, where did this go? How did this go? I, th I think you'd have to find a number in some senses for surreal, um, which I can't quite quantify on a 12T. Yeah, 12T <laughs> yeah, would be quite good uh, because there were different summits going on and the effects are different. So let me break it down in a few areas. I mean, the real story in some ways that I think we should all be concerned about and hopefully we'll get to, but the one that the oxygen was sucked out of for part of the weekend was what was happening beyond Trump um, because Trump went in there for a personal victory to get some of the heat off of him domestically. And so this was the idea that I'm a world leader. Vladimir Putin's a world leader. We're meeting. And, you know, the other 18. Who's meeting? Screw, yeah, you know. <laughs> it's us. It's like, screw, yeah, it's, yeah, we're meeting. And like, and like everybody else is just off to the side. But, of course, the real story, in fact, was those other 18 leaders. You know, you might call them the G18 because they're talking climate change, they're talking refugees and migration, they're talking about trade in an era of Trumpian protectionism, uh, they're talking about threats like the Islamic State, they're even talking about North Korea, which you think Trump would be concerned about and some way of trying to collectively deal with this. Um, and there were some notable developments out of that, perhaps most significantly the climate change statement, where the G18, joined by Putin, so let's call it now the G19, basically said to Trump, on your bike, my son, uh, if, you're not going, if you're going to withdraw from the Paris Accords uh, and you're going to go off with rolling back environmental regulations, we're going to proceed with this anyway. You're not going to back us off that stance. And even Trump's you know, near bestest friend, apart from Putin, Theresa May, who needs him for this holy grail of a trade rescue, uh, came out with a very critical statement about... You know, we don't really like what they're doing regarding climate change. And then there was sort of in the communique as well, there was a jab at the Americans over protectionism as well. They cloaked it by saying, of course, we don't want unfair trade, which is Trump's slogan. But it was very much, look, you know, this has to be a collective multilateral effort following on from number of the week if we're going to inhabit the earth. And in terms of the dynamics of the G19, apart from Trump, you're looking at someone like Macron, you're looking especially at Angela Merkel 
And you're looking at how the fact is these were the locuses of power. These were who the other leaders are talking to. There is a real power shift which is going on. And we can talk more about that if you wish. But for now, let's talk about that story. Then let's talk about the one that the U.S. media is picking up on, or at least for much of it is, which is Trump's really, you know, you call it creepy and fascistic, but others are saying this is the defense of Western value speech. He's out Reaganing Reagan. Potato. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> you know, you know, you skeptics. He you just, call it fascism, I call it visionary. Yeah, good. It's like he just saved the world, even though he didn't mention democracy once in that entire speech, right? It's like, it's a Western civilization speech. But then, of course, the key thing is he meets Trump. Or meets Trump, sorry, Trump meets Putin. And it's like, okay, this is going to be the moment where two superpowers, because this is Russia's moment to declare we're the equal of the U.S., forget what happened in the end of the Cold War, two superpowers organize the world. The problem for Trump is, is that the Russians, beyond the two superpower motif, were there to basically uh, stitch him up. And you'll know the story, or a lot of people know the story out there, that Trump walks right into it, does not take his national security advisor, H.R. McMaster. Who, it like, there's like a six-person meeting, which was, yeah, like so it's, just four actual officials and translators. Four officials, translators, and, and Trump takes in Rex Tillerson, who quite basically is, is, is useless as tits on a boar hog, uh, to use a Southern American phrase, to be there. I've been to the South, and I haven't heard that. Well, there that's you go. That's a real well, deep cut. That's uh, a real deep cut. Uh, <laughs> and that's where Rex Tillerson should be put after what happened, because... They walk in and say, oh, we have just agreed. Uh, we, we were very tough. We were very tough on Putin that, he, that the Russians should not have interfered in the 2016 election if they did so. Because, of course, Trump denies that they interfered in the 2016 election. But we're going to form a joint cybersecurity <laughs> panel with them. So, like, this is akin to basically saying to the arsonist, whether or not you burn my house down, will you now join the police force to investigate the purported arson and make sure it doesn't happen again? Which uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, probably well, Senator of yeah. South Carolina, probably went on television and said, uh, it's not the stupidest idea I've ever heard. And he is in the Republican caucus. So I can believe that's true, uh, but, it, but it's pretty close. Yeah, you know, and when you got Lindsey after you, you're in real trouble, right? So you got... Instead of focusing on climate change, instead of ironically focusing on trade, which Trump supposedly is concerned about, this is his big play. I've made this agreement with Putin for the cybersecurity meeting. But, of course, the Russians came out and said, actually, what the president did is he agreed with uh, President Putin that Russia didn't interfere in the 2016 election at all. And the White House is going, well, we protested, we protested. And the Russians go, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. You were quite happy with us. And we kind of all move on. And so the Russians embarrass him. The Russians, by the way, piled on the embarrassment because that photo of Ivanka Trump at the table with Merkel giving her a bit of side eye going, what are you doing here? And others going, she's just looking straight ahead. He doesn't even want to notice her, right? That photo was from the G20s, uh, from the Russian delegation. They got that out on Twitter, right? Okay, yeah. so that's the second effect is, is that Trump basically is offside. But let me just add a third because I said over the weekend, as you're doing all the interviews on the G20, and what about Trump and Putin? Isn't this a breakthrough? I said, by Monday morning, the G20 will be off the top of the news cycle in the States. It'll be gone, and it will be replaced by the domestic story of the Trump-Russia scandal, because what Trump did last Thursday is he went and he insulted the U.S. intelligence agencies again. He said, you got it wrong with Iraq. You're wrong about Russia 2016, 2017. Then he rubbed their faces in it with this cybersecurity panel thing. 
And so guess what happens? New York Times, doing some great journalism, they choose this moment to say, you know what, Donald Trump Jr., Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, campaign manager, Paul Manafort, met with a lawyer connected to the Kremlin in June 2016 to talk about what kind of dirt they had on Hillary Clinton. Collusion? Anybody want to start talking about this? And that, of course, is now the story that as we are recording speaks of. So, sorry, a bit of a yeah, long explanation. It's kind of hanging around his neck. I had a friend who, who described Donald Trump Jr. as uh, in a family of Fredos, the Fredoist, uh, perhaps, of them all. Uh, he really does seem to have put his, put his foot uh, right yeah. in it. I, well, yeah, and, and I think we're now sub-Fredo. I mean, we're talking about those people that didn't even make the cast list of the Godfather in terms of competence. But I guess to come back with that long explanation is, is there, the two stories are you almost have to look at the G19 and say, where are we going to go on security issues? Where are we going on environmental issues? And then you've got to look at Trump, who is making all these efforts to pretend to be a world leader that are collapsing within 48, 72 hours and realize that the U.S. story now diverges once again because there are going to be the two stories this week. One is the Trump-Russia collusion, possibly, question mark. And the second is going to be the health care bill that you alluded to in Numbers of the Week because they failed to get that health care bill before the July 4th recess. If they fail to get it before the August recess, he's pretty much done and dusted as being any type of effective president in terms of legislation. But hmm. so what? So what? What does this mean? Well, again, How does this change global things? or domestic? D- both. Okay. Start I, with domestic. Go. Domestic. I get, I get this, you know, every interview, I'm getting these questions, right, TV, but what about those that support him? What about those support him? And, and, it, and I finally, about the fifth time that came up, said what I think, which is, for a minority of Americans, Trump could say Jesus is the Antichrist. And they go, hadn't quite thought of it that way, but you're right. You know, it's like... The, the idea that Trump could now ally with Russia, given decades of animosity between Washington and Moscow, thought, well, that's absolutely fine. You know, the idea that Trump could detach himself from other countries, longtime allies, well, that's quite right. You know, we're America, you know. Mm. The idea that America first is really America alone, well, that's no problem. But that's a shrinking minority. Well, I mean, uh, that's, just know. to say, Frank Rich um, wrote in uh, New York Magazine, uh, uh, an excellent article, long read about the Watergate uh, scandal, because obviously a lot of people are comparing what's going on right now with Watergate, um, and there are a lot of fairly trite and shallow ways of doing that, but also a lot of fairly trite and shallow dismissals of the resemblances. People who want to say, no, it's different. So he went, he lived through it, but it was a long time ago. So he went back and read a lot of the relevant history and points up, you know, many of the ways in which there really is a much closer resemblance between what's going on now and Watergate than people would appreciate. But one of the things he pointed mm-hmm. out was that even at the time when he was uh, about to be forced to resign because of unambiguous criminality. Richard Nixon still had approval ratings like north of 20%. Um, So there is a certain number of people who will stick with you if you're their guy, you know, well past that that point. And Donald Trump is clearly, you know, going to keep some people with him, come what may. I think the important point followed up, that's a great point that's made about Watergate, which remember took two years from break-in to resolution, and mm-hmm. we're still only six months into Trump's presidency. And that is, they're backing Trump now, however, the shrinking minority, not as effective leader. They're backing him as victim. 
right? It's like, and you can see this in his tweets and in the tweets of his son, you know, the hapless Fredo, uh, Donald Trump Jr., which is, but wait, Hillary Clinton did this. But wait, it's the fake media that are attacking us. But wait, you know, it's a foreign power that's not the Russians, but it's another foreign power that's going after us. And you just keep trying to play this out. And what happens is you get into more and more of a defensive mode that comes to it. So I think it's going to be death by a thousand political cuts. I'm going to repeat that. But again, you know, because we do want to talk G20, we don't conflict. What does the rest of the world now do? Yeah. What does the rest of, where does it yeah. go? I, I mean, to, to veer back to, to what happened at, at the G20 recently, I mean, you know, first of all, the, the meeting with Vladimir Putin. Like, the thing that strikes, okay, so here's, so he goes into this meeting um, and he says, hey, uh, my intelligence agencies all say that you interfered in the U.S. election um, and they're pretty unambiguous about it, so I should really raise that with you. Did you do that? Uh, and Vladimir Putin, in uh, Donald Trump's word, which is all we really have because it's the people in the meeting, he vehemently uh, denied it, uh, apparently, which, you know, Two things, like, first of all, uh, uh, Preet Bahara, uh, the former uh, senior prosecutor in New York, who does an excellent line in Twitter trolling of, of Donald Trump, said, well, you know, when we're investigating stuff uh, at the FBI or, or whatnot, if we ask them about it and they vehemently deny it, we, we just tend to drop it right there, uh, which is a pretty good summary. But also, like, on a purely, to take it at face value, Donald Trump lies all the time like literally every day Donald Trump tells lies yet in this one instance it's weird it's like he needs to have it explained to him from first principles like what lying is because he keeps citing the fact that um, the fact that people denied stuff as though it were dispositive evidence to the effect that it didn't happen it's like dude like you're lying right now about stuff that you did uh, and say you didn't do so how can it be this massive intellectual leap for you to understand the, the same kind of thing which just adds you know another thing to the list of hundreds uh, that are just weird about what like why do you think this way about this one particular case that that is Russia if there's if there's nothing here but to turn to the to the bigger to the bigger picture um, I always feel like I try to separate Donald Trump out into three bits when it comes to situations like this um, first of all there's the extent to which he is just the leader of the Republican Party and the Republican Party is super conservative, so he's doing whatever their leader would do. So, for example, the climate change stuff, which is what people have picked up on most as the bad thing that he did, you know, the whole Republican Party these days is pretty much set against all that stuff. And I can readily see a world in which, you know, in a slightly less abrasive way, a similar line is being taken by a different, by a different Republican president on that issue and the U.S. ends up kind of isolated. And that, that's the case with, with a, few different, um, a few different issues. So it's not really Trump-specific, except in the manner, perhaps, of its delivery. Secondly, like, there's the little weirdnesses, the fact that he's just a... a a guy who has no experience doing this, surrounded by people who have no experience doing this and has no instinct for what's appropriate and what's not. So he's just always saying and doing things the wrong or the weird way. And the Ivanka Trump thing, I guess it's like a microaggression against democratic norms, but it's just, it, it's, it's one of those things that consumes a whole news cycle despite really meaning nothing. It's just like a stupid thing to have done, um, like many of his tweets are. And then there's the third 
category, which is like the ways in which his cluelessness and ill will actually manifest as something more like a, a real attack on, on, on U.S. interests or do, or do direct damage to, to U.S. interests. And it seems to me that that's probably one of the biggest legacies of this G20, the fact that, you know, Donald Trump is seen as being cluelessly unaware of the substance of any of the issues being discussed, not competent to negotiate or follow through any kind of agreement, um, a person of bad character and ill will uh, uh, and, and, their, and bad faith, and therefore like not someone with whom you can work. And aggregating all of that, it is seen as an indictment of the American political system's ability going forward to provide a stable leadership to the world like if it's possible for you to elect this guy then okay maybe we ride this out he goes away we get someone better or at least someone normal but the world can't afford to be putting its faith in the assumption that america is going to elect responsible people and therefore it needs to think uh, about how it keeps its own house in order even in the absence of american leadership that's either competent or, or or acting in good faith so that kind of idea that you know Maybe it's good for the world, but from the point of view of the United States and its desire to continue to exercise uh, a central leadership role in in the maintenance of world order, um, Donald Trump's uh, performance in this meeting, as in all other meetings, I think, has done an awful lot to undermine any plausible prospect of maintaining that kind of centrality. Let Let me follow up that just by trying to sort of organize it all in my own head and to link the specific of Trump to the wider issues we're talking about. I tended to be an outlier um, in in somewhat of those who look at the U.S. by saying for many years that, in fact, I didn't actually believe in the U.S. as the superpower. I didn't believe at some points in it as the leading power. Um, that, That Cold War image, if indeed the U.S. was the superpower coming out of it, had pretty much dissipated, especially with the failure to, to, you know, with the demonstration case of the Iraq War in 2003. So well before Trump came into power, I said, well, you know, America is actually off to the side. If you talk about the Middle East, it's been decentered. If you talk about in certain areas of Asia where China's operating, it's not necessarily the central power that folks look at. And I still hold to that. But I think what's happened with Trump is that mystique of American power, if you will. And, you know, and as much as I have problems with the term soft power, especially as Joseph Knight tends to throw it around to try to justify, you know, this American supremacy, it was in that mystique of American soft power that everybody looks at Trump and what's going on, and Jesus, what the hell can, you know, there's no way we can follow this. There's no way we can. And, and even talking to my relatives now, that minority who support Trump and trying gently to get that across to them, they don't get that, I don't think. They don't understand that American exceptionalism or whatever you want to call it has just been so badly dented by this. And what I'm looking at now is, all right, where do you go next? Because what you really have to look at, whether you're talking about an institution like NATO, whether you're talking about getting together in terms of a multilateral collective on environmental issues, whether you're talking about a multilateral body in terms of trade issues, someone's got to step it up now. Now, I think in one sense, the Chinese, of course, are going to be pursuing what they have done for decades, which is maneuvering in terms of diplomacy. But do they go beyond that and, in fact, say, take on, look, we're not just doing it for Chinese interests, we're going to lead the bloc. Mm -hmm. Do you look at the European Union through, say, a France and a Germany 
coming out of this terrible period for it and taking up that role. Having, I'm not even going to mention if the UN can do that because I think that's off to the side. Yeah, that's one for the model UN crowd. That yeah, I think. So that's where I'm looking in terms of that dynamics of power. And right now, I think we're just at the early stages of what it means. And of course, the longer that Trump is in office, the more of a necessity there will be for that. You know, the salvation might be well, if he's gone in a year, someone will come right in as an American white knight, which I don't think will happen. But, you know. But I mean, part of it's about values, right? Because, like, David, uh, David Frum wrote a pretty good reaction piece in The Atlantic about that speech we referred to uh, in Warsaw, saying, like, it's not so much what he said, it wasn't the best crafted speech, uh, you know. It was it was a little loose in its language in references to civilization, etc. But it was the main, the bigger problem was who delivered it. It was like knowing everything you know about the kind of uh, crass ethno nationalist sensibilities of Donald Trump's political career just gives a wholly different character to a lot of the the words that he was saying. So with Donald Trump, part of it's that feeling that to the extent that the point of U.S. leadership was maintaining a liberal world order, having someone who <laughs> just does not seem at all liberal uh, or to even really understand what liberal order is or why it would have worth is a problem. And part of it, I think, is like competence. Like, say what you like, whether they were led by a conservative or by uh, someone more, more to the left of center, the American state and its political leadership could usually be assumed to have a degree of technical competence um, that was in the frontier of the world. So you could pass them the ball on some operational matter and they could, you know, catch it without knocking their own teeth out on the on the goalposts. And that, like, that is clearly undermined right now, that you have this man who is manifestly as dumb as a box of rocks uh, sitting at a table, cluelessly bluffing his way through discussion of really important matters, while an administration that's heinously understaffed, like hundreds of uh, deputy and undersecretary and deputy undersecretary posts in the State Department and all the other major departments, not even like with documents not even nominated for them, let, let alone confirmed, like the American government's capacity to project operational competence is has been devastated by this uh, by this administration. But again, let me take one shot at a longer view that says even if Trump disappears tomorrow, the problem that's highlighted through Trump actually is well before him and it's going to have to be confronted. So I think it's ironic in a way. I agree with David Frum on a lot of things today as he critiques Trump's language and Trump's actions. But remember, this is the same David Frum who was one of the authors of the Axis of Evil speech mm-hmm. back in 2002 that helped justify the disastrous Iraq war. So the reason I mention that is, look, this notion of America leading a liberal world order was shattered by that Iraq war. I think it never actually was fully true, but we'll leave that for another discussion. But it was shattered by Iraq, and it's not like Obama put it all back together again. The mistrust of America... And again, remember, you mentioned two European leaders. Who do you mention? Macron of France. You mentioned Merkel of Germany. I didn't, but I will in a minute. Well, in terms of them being at the G20, right? Yeah. And then say, you know, and then who were the two countries, two European countries trying to hold the line against the Americans going into an operational as well as uh, a disaster of values, right? Mm-hmm. It was France and Germany. Now, you talking now about Trump piling on damage, and I think in a very... Uh, his very unique way, which makes it even much much worse. But he's just piling on damage that's been accruing, really now going on for more than a decade. Mm. Um, 
And I think someone is not just going to have to simply say, if we see the back end, that's gone. We dodged a bullet. There's a lot of a lot of stray fire, and that fire will continue. By the way, if the Republican Party doesn't get its act together on something like the environment, so let me just add one more story to get your reaction to this, where I think there was a missed opportunity by the Trump administration. They knew if they pulled out of the Paris Accords that there'd be damage on environmental change. So for weeks there was a debate within the administration, and it was like. Rex Tillerson was saying, no, we need to be inside this diplomatically. We don't want to be outside of this, which makes sense. It was Ivanka and Jared Kushner saying, well, you know, the economic benefits of being there and green energy, we don't want to lose that as well. But in the end, Trump, because of whim, because of Steve Bannon, and to get the headlines, says, we'll pull out of the Paris Accords. Now that tells you, even when it comes to the case of acting pragmatically in American interest, mm-hmm. American interest, this administration can't do that. Um, So there's a lot to be put together again, not just on behalf of what happens in the White House, but the actual GOP itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the the Republican Party used to be a political mechanism that harvested votes from angry uh, racial and cultural reactionaries and then translated them into legislation to benefit like rich uh, business people uh, and high earners while, you know, trying to largely insulate the world of actual policy from their own mm-hmm. voters. That mechanism has broken down because uh, people have discovered that if they actually give somewhat more of what they want to those voters, there are enough of them now and the normative and institutional checks are so weak that they can uh, they can ride to power by, by eating the lunch of the kind of Republicans that used to, that used to do exactly that. Like in, a, in a sense, the Republican base has started to occupy Occupy uh, the actual elected offices itself uh, in some instances, and that's to those who used to regard the base as something to be, um, on some level, manipulated and used. Horrifying, of course, because they never actually imagined the day would come when the stuff they play at election season would would become tunes they need to they need to carry forward in, in reality. Um, one last thing I want to say before we before we finish up is just to. to, to uh, take a moment to note Angela Merkel's uh, increasing memification. Um, her, her, her side side yeah, eyes, yes, <laughs> like eye rolls. Yeah, I mean, she was the host of this uh, G20 meeting because it was held in Hamburg. She's also like, one of the longest-standing, um, the longest-standing major uh, world leader uh, in, in the. Hmm. Uh, in the system these days and likely to get re-elected in, in September. Uh, and it's interesting uh, <laughs> the, the way that um, she has now clearly for a significant part of the American kind of center and left and the British center and left and uh, no doubt the you know various other international iterations of that constituency be kind of become the face of a sort of exasperated uh, maturity or adult in the room sensibility when faced with, I mean, Trump is the extreme uh, idiot man-child 
uh, toddler throwing a tantrum slash wandering around, you know, uh, eating worms and sticking his fingers in the sockets. But also, you know, people like Putin with his ridiculous um, boorish machismo, who was uh, in, in a wonderful gif caught like uh, explaining, uh, it looked like at least, explaining missile trajectory to Angela Merkel immediately after she had just explained the same thing to him. And her eye roll was tremendous. Or like looking side-eyed at Ivanka Trump or at Putin in the photo or like looking at Emmanuel Macron battering his way to the front of the uh, to the front of the group photograph so he could stand next to Trump. She just has this kind of um, frustrated and despairing uh, kind of educational authority figure vibe uh, when she's around these guys that uh, in terms of my identity politics really jives with me. And I think you know, although you know she is sort of a right-of-center conservative Christian Democrat, which especially in the German context means she's in favor of all sorts of stuff that I wouldn't ideally um, sign on for. But I am, uh, I am identifying a lot with her uh, increasingly externally expressed torment as someone who values appropriateness and maturity uh, thrust into this context with people who in various ways um, just absolutely lack any understanding of that as a way of as a way of as a way of viewing the world so folks on that happy note to my relatives in the south of the united states welcome to the leader of the free world chancellor merkel and y'all have a nice day Okay, I think we've set the world to rights. Uh, thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poor Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or on iTunes, where you can leave us a rating or a comment, which uh, is very important because it helps other people discover the pod. We would very much appreciate it if you if you did that. Uh, share us on social media as well. If you if you enjoyed listening to this, why not post us post a link to this show somewhere and say, "Hey, everybody, I discovered a thing. That thing." is awesome listen to it um think it's smart think i'm smart by proxy uh it's uh, it's all good also come to our facebook page facebook.com forward slash poll worldview where we share episodes links etc um our participants today have been Cristalia Kinthi. Where can people find you, Cristalia, on social media platforms should they choose to do so? They can find me on Twitter at, at Yukinthu, which is Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. Adam, I know you have missed me spelling my surname. Yeah, well, you can't, can't be too careful. Can That's you? right. And Scott, where can they find you? Well, they can find me on Facebook, but a lot of the time I'm on Twitter, at Scott Lucas underscore EA. And I'm always to be found at the news and analysis website, EA Worldview, which right. is eaworldview.com. Are you swinging back Twitterwards? You went through a, a Facebook, uh, a phase of preferring Facebook. You've gone back there? I'm a man of many platforms <laughs> these days. You usually control me everywhere across social media now. <laughs> uh, I'm Adam Quinn. I am on Twitter, Adam James Quinn, but I'm more often on Facebook, uh, where I'm the Adam Quinn who's in Birmingham, Adam Quinn 161, or the Adam Quinn standing next to Lyndon Johnson, depending on whether you want to do it by uh, location, number, or photograph. Uh, our producer is Connor McKenna. We have been brought to you with the kind support of the University of Birmingham Alumni Impact Fund. Thank you very much to them for their uh, their generosity and their money. Um, and we've been listening to us from the Pulses Department at the University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back soon. We very much hope you will be too. Bye. Bye. Take care.